Let's pray. God, this morning before we climb into the Word as a people, I want to lift up a, uh, another church that's way south of us at the southern tip of Mexico. I want to lift up a little church that uh, is gathering likely right now, a pastor named Carlos, um, gathering a group of orphans and some families in an orphanage and um, who are singing about you, enjoying you, little kids that are singing at the top of their lungs, a song that they've learned during the week. Lord, I pray for Carlos as he brings the word, that he exposes it and that the people of God enjoy it and savor it, that their hearts are made glad by it. Lord, I pray for this little church in Teopisca. I pray for health and uh, pray for leadership. I pray that the leadership multiplies both as plural leadership and as men that are being raised up to uh, deacon, elder, shepherd. Um, Pray for Lance as a missionary that's serving alongside them, that uh, you'd give Lance insight and wisdom in how to journey with this church, how to expose the word in their lives and to uh, partner with them in raising up leadership. Lord, uh, this morning I pray for our time together. Uh, I just pray that we will uh, expose truth, that we will be receptive and eager. It will make our hearts glad. I pray that we um, are changed by it, that we are equipped by it. I pray a result from this specific message that will be that we are more aromatic and that we are saltier, that we are brighter, that the natural fear that we have of man and what he thinks or she thinks is uh, diminished Uh, That we won't count conspiracy, what others count conspiracy. That we will primarily and especially be oriented on you and your ways and your best for us and your word and your design. And that we'll seek with everything in us to bring pleasure, good, um, appropriate response to the gospel to you. um, And all the while being clothed in the righteousness of another. Lord, we turn this time over to you, and uh, we pray that you'll be enjoyed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I told uh, Christy over breakfast, Luke was sitting there eating a Pop-Tart. I told Christy over breakfast that I think this this last sermon that was going to be the last sermon on being hated by the world is actually going to become another one. And Luke had a chunk of Pop-Tart in his mouth, and he starts laughing. He said, I remember when you said it was going to be two sermons, and he's chuckling with a chunk of Pop-Tart hanging out of his mouth. I just looked at him, glared at him. We're not in a hurry, though. Uh, that's really been our approach to the, to the Word. And uh, you just don't rush things. You can really savor. And um, the Hatred series, I think, is, has been a surprise. It's been a surprise for me. I really thought it would be a brief handling of something that would kind of equip us to hunker down and you know, not be a bunch of conspiracy theorists, but biblically to understand what it means to be hated by the world. But it's been so much more than that. I think in a lot of ways it's uh, explained a lot, not just outside of the church, but even inside the church. It's uh, helped us understand some things. I think it's equipping us how to be Christian in situations that are not likely, but are inevitable. Um, I told Scott this morning, one of the things I'm really confused about this morning and this morning's message is I'd like to tease things out into here's the world and here's the church. But sometimes the church can be real worldly. (laughs) And sometimes even the most fervent worshiper of Christ can be doggone hateful. So I'm not sure that these teachings on being hated by the world is that tidy. Here's the world and then here's the church. Because we all have those things that we can learn from this. Those lines kind of get blurred. And um, so hopefully today the Holy Spirit will help you piece those things together. And then in a small group and as you work through things with your families, um, he'll connect those dots that we need to connect to. That's my goal and prayer. We're in John chapter 15, if you want to turn there. You might be there already. Uh, Starting in verse 18, we've just been feasting on this paragraph, verse 18 through 25. 
Today we're going to ask and answer the question, how are we to respond when we as servants of our master are hated by the world? How are we to respond when we as servants of our master are hated by the world? John chapter 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, on the other hand, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is telling the eleven, Judas has departed by this point. He's telling the eleven that by nature of their citizenship in his kingdom, that they will be hated. They'll be hated because they're foreigners. They're not of this world. They'll be hated because they're chosen out of the world. They'll be hated because they serve a different master. They'll be hated because they bear a different name. And that like their master, they will be hated without a cause. And all of those things over the last few weeks we've connected to 2,000 years later, these things are no different for us now. Today we're dealing with the question, how do we respond when we as servants of our master are hated by the world? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> we're going to sit really in the next couple of minutes. I'll kind of give you a map of where we're going this morning. We're going to see what Peter, a witness to this John 15 teaching, has to say how do we, about how we respond when we're hated by the world. And we're going to look at kind of a, um, a model for how to respond. And a man named Stephen. Um, and then a few others. And we're going to look at our response according to 1 Peter chapter 3 and chapter 4. And then how, how else we should respond. One other point. That's not a very good map. That's really kind of a jumbled mess. But just follow me. I have a plan. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Again, words from a man who sat with Christ on the eve of his crucifixion and heard these words, you'll be hated like me. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's hard to imagine that he wouldn't be thinking about being hated by the world in this situation. As he's describing suffering for righteousness' sake. He says, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. We might include, connecting to John chapter 15, have no fear of the haters, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the first thing that we can glean from this passage, it's appropriate when we're hated by the world, is that we are prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We need to be prepared to give an account for the hope that's in, yet we should be able and be prepared to do that with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So from that little short paragraph, we can draw out a few things that we are to be prepared to give an account. Silence is not Christian. I want you to hear that. I want you to understand that. In the last seven years, I've probably done this. I know I've seen this. When things get difficult and tense between people, a lot of times the response is, talk to the hand. Blocka, blocka, blocka. That's what we do. We're joking, joking around, around. Blocka, blocka, blocka. Close your eyes. Stick fingers in yours. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to hear this. 
That is not Christian. We are to be prepared to give an account for the hope within, and we are to be prepared to give that account with gentleness and respect. And we're going to explore gentleness and respect probably most thoroughly this morning. I think that's where we need to really camp out. Now, picking up in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, we're going to grab a couple more characteristics of how we should respond. Verse 12 Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. We could import John chapter 15 in here at the fiery trial of being hated by the world. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, don't look around and say, why is this happening to me? Especially not in light of John chapter 15. He says, if you're servants of the master, you're going to be hated as I've been hated. How do you think you're going to get away with that? So don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Little side note, (laughs) differentiating between why you experience trial for Christ's sake or if just because you're a knucklehead. But let As a murderer, it's back. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That's not good reasons for suffering. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So some things that we can add to Peter's list of how to respond to the hatred of the world. We can add, first of all, don't be surprised. We're servants of our master. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. Secondly, respond with joy. We're to respond and rejoicing that we're some way partnering in, the, in the, the suffering of our Lord. We also should respond without shame. Don't be ashamed of that like you've done something wrong, like you've mishandled something necessarily. Now, that's, it's appropriate to self-examine and say, could I have done this differently? But you can do everything right. You can do it the way Christ would have done it. And still experience division. Remember last week? Still experience hatred. A man walked with Christ for three years and yet conspired to betray him. Do you think that you're above that? You think that's going to happen, not going to happen to you because you're going to do it better than Christ did? So don't be ashamed, not if it happens, but when it happens. And lastly, enjoyify the word that we made up, God. Glorify God. That's what it means. Enjoy God in that moment. Turn to Acts chapter 6. What we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to climb into a story, really an account of a man we met briefly last week, as sort of a model and an illustration for 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4. He's a guy that's hated by the world. You're going to see it. Stark hatred. Deathly, murderous hatred. But he's a guy that we can climb into the story, we can see some elements that we saw over here in 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4. Last week I didn't read it in entirety just because uh, for the sake of time, but today, since we're going to bump this into next Sunday as well, we're going to savor this entire sermon. It's the sweetest. I, I mean, it's one of my favorite passages in our Bible. So we're going to start in John, or excuse me, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, lots of folks there, lots of um, enemies, you might say, against Stephen. These guys rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, and I use a different voice because this is the way people who secretly instigate things talk. (laughs) We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And then they set up false witnesses who said, 
This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Put yourself in, the, in that man's shoes, Stephen. Would anybody be mad? I mean, I, I'm just climbing into Stephen's shoes. I think I would be hacked. If men are secretly instigated against me, if somebody set up false witnesses against me, all I'm doing is telling people about Jesus. And Stephen, of course, he's healing people. And all these things are happening to him. But this man, what I believe is putting on, is on display is 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4 when he hears the first glimpse. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He's not surprised. <laughs> He's not surprised as if something strange is happening to him. he got the face of an angel. I don't know what an angel's face looks like, but I bet it looks serene. I mean, he's just flying around, floating around all the time. He doesn't have to deal with his flesh decaying and dying. He sees God. I bet an angel's just happy. Imagine old Stephen's face, the face of an angel, when these dudes are conspiring against him. And the high priest says to the man with the face of an angel, Are these things so? And Stephen says, we're going to climb into this sweet and thorough sermon. Brothers... And fathers, the first couple of words that come out of his mouth. Brothers and fathers, not knuckleheads, not mean-spirited, conniving, evil, instigating false witnesses. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs... Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all, over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out his fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise grew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. I hope you all know, I, are familiar enough with this story. And if you're not, I want you to know this before I continue. These are the last words this man's going to speak on earth. It's his last sermon. It's his last moments. Let's just climb into that and get the gravity of the detail. This man treasures the story that he's sharing with us right now. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, are you brothers? Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. I just can't imagine at this point that the Sadducees and Pharisees and the guys that have rocks in their hands and they're looking around for a rock, that they're not just kind of rolling their eyes saying, dude, we know all this. Come on, man. What else you got? But Stephen presses on. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in, the, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. It's a prophetic passage about Christ. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness and the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." And he did. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses and directed him to make. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Stephen, this is your last minutes. Is this how you want to spend it? Don't you want to kind of rush through this thing and just kind of ease this situation? It looks pretty tense, Stephen. These guys are breathing fire. <laughs> a couple of them have rocks in their hands. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make these things? Here's where it shifts gears. Stephen, with the face of an angel, says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your father persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered... You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That wasn't the right thing to say, apparently. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, while he's getting hit by rocks, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against these dudes who are hitting me with big, ugly rocks. Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's an amazing, amazing account. The final moments of a deacon, deacons, a deacon named Stephen. His account is public, it's bold, it's thorough, and it's true. And his example is a model example for 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4. He gave an account, he gave it boldly, he gave it thoroughly. He wasn't surprised when it happened. He got the face of an angel. He was joyful. <laughs> How in the world? He's joyful, though. He's looking up into heaven. There's Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has no shame when this moment is unfolding, like he's done something wrong. He's glorifying God. And here's the most difficult thing for me to really understand is that he is, in fact, gentle and respectful. This man is gentle and respectful. Here are a few clues as to his disposition. I hope you caught them as we went through chapter 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It wasn't the grimace of a guy who's been wronged. Err. It's the face of an angel. Who's not surprised? And this is good because the gospel may be on display more in this moment and through this injustice than it would be otherwise. It's a face of peace, but a sweet, gentle disposition toward men that don't rate it. He starts his speech out to them as with the words brothers and fathers. I think I might have had some different words. Brothers and fathers. And then he ends his final breath. So he ends these moments with, Lord, do not hold this sin against these men. The guy is just bathed in gentleness and respect. But the thing that really stands out as difficult for me to, to digest is in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your father persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This man looks at the men that are going to stone him. He looks at them with the face of an angel he intercedes for them in his final breaths. He refers to them as brothers and fathers. And yet in the same conversation, he calls them stiff-necked, disobedient, lawless murderers. When I read those words, I think with my understanding of gentleness, 2,000 years old, I look at that and I say, that doesn't look gentle. That doesn't sound gentle. He was gentle maybe in every part except that. But when you start calling names, I learned when I was growing up that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In reality, name calling is not something you're supposed to do. Don't call names. But you hear a man who's modeling gentleness and respect says you're stiff-necked, you're disobedient, you're lawless, you're murderers. When I'm looking at this with a 2,000-year-old understanding of gentleness, I can't reconcile it. And the problem is, either he's not being gentle right here in just this moment, he has a little lapse of err, or I don't know what gentleness means. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Peter Lightheart. It's called Deep Exegesis. It's really exciting. I know y'all all, all want to read it. He's got a section here where he's dealing with words, and he describes words as being round. That it, a word, if you look at a single word from one single direction, you can't get an understanding of what that word means. You can go to a dictionary and maybe get some trajectories on it, 
But it takes context to understand the true meaning of a word. And it takes time because words change meaning over time. I was thinking this morning about words like uh, gay. When I was growing up, people used to name their kids gay. I went to church with a girl named Galen Brown because it meant happy. Buff used to mean naked. And now it means like strapped. That dude's buff. Well, he's got clothes on. <laughs> no, I mean he's pumped. Words change meaning. Starve used to mean death by um, not just deprivation of food, but water. Um, just th- things that you, clothing, uh, warmth, the things that you need to survive. But through, um, I'm drawing a blank on what they call it when they surround a city. Siege. I knew Brent Money would know. See, through siege, it became, the, the definition refined, and it became more narrow to mean deprivation of food. Word meanings change, and I'm thinking 2,000 years later, do we even know what gentleness means? Have 2,000 years done damage somehow to what the word gentle means. We have to look at it in context from different directions because it's round. We have to get the understanding of it. And our proper understanding of it is going to be a biblical definition of it, not what we think is gentle. So let's look at some other snapshots. I don't want you to turn. I want you to listen. Unless you're just like super high-speed sword drill warrior. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Listen to this. This is John the Baptist. I meant to not shave this morning because anytime I talk about John the Baptist, I want to be unshaven because he's awesome. But when, he came, or when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Ooh, name calling. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell y'all, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. For every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Harsh words seems, because I'm looking at a 2,000-year-old definition of gentleness, and I'm going, that can't be gentle. Whenever Peter wrote about gentleness, he must have not meant John the Baptist. And I'm going to show you here in a second that we could look at it and say, well, he must not have meant Jesus either. Now, I know John the Baptist is hard to digest because he eats locusts and he wears like skins and he is a straight shooting, beef eating cat. He's easy to dismiss as, man, this guy is really hard. He's got this message of repent and the kingdom of God is at hand. So it seems really appropriate for him to call them brood of vipers. Maybe everybody's gentle except for John the Baptist. Let's look at Jesus. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, let me give you just a moment of context. Jesus has just been questioned by the Sadducees and the Pharisees about resurrection. So he's speaking to Sadducees and Pharisees. They're there while there's some crowds there. They're in this setting. Just imagine dudes with funny hats. You know, the scribes, I guess, had some funny hats. Pharisees were a little less uh, adorned. But they were wearing an attire that would be fitting for Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're here with crowds and Jesus is teaching. And they're trying to trip him up. So he's engaging the scribes and Pharisees. And then in this moment, he looks away from the scribes and Pharisees. And he starts talking to the crowd. And here's what he said to the crowd and to his disciples. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. You could imagine them going, well, yeah. Good, Jesus, finally. Appreciate the fact that you're not undermining us. Sounds like you're supporting us. You're on our team, after all. But then he says, do, what they, uh, do whatever they tell you, but not what they do. You can imagine them going bristling. What? Wait a second. I'm starting to get uncomfortable here. Where's this going? And Jesus says, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He's saying this in front of them. I mean, we got to climb into this moment and go, ooh. If I were a scribe or a Pharisee, I would be kind of looking for a rock to hide under. 
Wait a second. He's dogging me out in front of the crowds. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Oh. For they make their phylacteries. That's the little thing that holds the scripture. They make them broad like a big old hanging in front of their head. And their fringes long, their little prayer fringes. They make them real long. See how I pray? <laughs> he, he wants every, everybody to, they want everybody to see it. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, a little section on that. He said, whoever exalts himself to be, will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now he turns back to them. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Yikes. Right? Gentle? <laughs> not by 2,000-year-old Greenville standards. By 2,000-year-old Greenville standards, I dismiss you for what, how you've said it. Not what you've said, but how you've said it. No, thank you. Talk to the hand. It says, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. He's not even close to done. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guide straining out a gnat, you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the plate and the plate, and inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. You also are outwardly righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in those days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Gentle? Respectful? Maybe we don't know what that means. I don't think Peter would have said, go do something as servants of the master that the master didn't somehow model. But we look at these snapshots and we go, well, I can't reconcile that. And the problem is we don't know how to define gentleness and respect. 2,000-year-old understanding is problematic. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said in John chapter 8 that the revival gone bad. They're filling out their, their decision cards in the front with those little short pencils that are never sharp enough. They're filling them out in the front. And by the end of the chapter, they're looking, they've set their pencils and their little decision cards down. And they picked up rocks to stone Jesus because he said, your daddy's the devil. To the money changers, he said, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers as he chased them out of the temple. In John chapter 4, there's a nobleman that comes to him with his son at death's door and his dad. I mean, is there anybody more sincere than a dad who's begging for the health of his son? Heal my son. He shows up to, to Jesus. Heal my son, please. He's about to die. And Jesus says to this feeble, frightened father, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus. Goodness, he's a feeble, frail, scared father. Take it easy. Thankfully, the next sentence he said is, go home, your son is healed. As we look at snapshots throughout our Bible, we see people where we could easily say, well, that's not general respectful, but we've got to understand 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4, witness, written by a guy who witnessed these events. And he's telling us to give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect. We've got to understand what gentleness and respect looks like. Paul's another example. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's been a, a chapter that's been really eye-opening for me, for the elders, when we're working through matters of repentance. For those of you who are parents and you're trying to understand repentance in your kids, what to look for, this is the goods right here. The context here is Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's referring to a letter that he's already written them. It's called the severe letter, and it's not a letter that we have. There were more letters to the church of Corinth than just First and Second Corinthians. There was an intermediate letter that Paul refers to as the, the, this past letter that we call the severe letter or the letter of tears. And Paul is referring to this letter as he writes these words. He sent Titus to check on the church in Corinth. And Titus comes back with a great report about how Corinth is doing, the church in Corinth. And Paul says in chapter 6, or chapter 7, verse 6, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter... That's the severe letter. Even if I made you grieve, I do not regret it, though I did regret it while I was writing it. I didn't take pleasure in being straight and pointed and sharp with you. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proven yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, It was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Paul used, God used, the better way to put it, a severe letter from a church planter to a church that he planted to bring this church to a place of repentance. And they received it. I wonder 2,000 years later if we would have received that letter. I wonder if we are so conditioned, and I don't mean cross point necessarily, but I mean the faith, the contemporary faith that I've grown up in, that you've grown up in, and this is not a condemnation of all things currently Christian. But I wonder if I haven't been so glad-handed for so long, so stroked for so long, so patted on the back for so long, so made to feel better for so long, that I would have dismissed this letter as, ah, it's harsh. Talk to the hand, Paul. But the Corinthian church received it. And they were brought to a place of repentance through it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen truth dismissed just because of the method of delivery. And I fear that that's because we don't know what gentleness and respect mean. We think it means just be nice. Just be nice. If somebody's offended, then you must have messed it up. If somebody's grieved, you must have done it wrong, homeboy. We've got to let this word expose what gentleness and respect means. Galatians. Don't turn there. Listen. There's a problem in the Galatian church. It's a group of people that had snuck into the church... What are you doing? You were about to take a bath. Oh, really? Oh, you scared me to death. It's like Aaron Hamilton has gone haywire. There's a problem in our church, and it's Aaron Hamilton. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That would have been a bummer. <laughs> All right, there's a back to the word and the sermon. Thank you very much. There's a problem in the Galatian church, and the problem is called the Judaizers. There's a group of people who snuck into the Galatian church, and they've kind of presented a new gospel, or they've added to an existing gospel, which did complete damage to the original gospel. 
They said that grace is not the only way that you're saved. You're, great, you're saved through grace plus circumcision is what they referred to in their case. And Paul, writing to a church that he's known from its infancy, is saying, who bewitched you, you fools? If, you, if anybody comes in teaching a different gospel than I've taught to you, then anathema. That's a way of saying, now this sounds really strong, to hell with them. That's what anathema means. That sounds strong? Yee, that's harsh. That's how dangerous it is to mess with the gospel. In fact, they were teaching grace plus something. And what Paul says in chapter 5 of verse 12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's talking about circumcision. I wish those who teach that it's grace plus circumcision, that the knife would slip. That's how grave it is to mess with his gospel. To mess with the gospel. Gentle? Respectful? Not by 2010 terms. Greenville. That's harsh. In our context, truthfulness like this, I fear, is automatically considered harsh and rude and often, if not usually, dismissed. You can go in any direction and find somebody to stroke you and pat you and go get them. So when somebody rebukes somebody, admonishes somebody, which is part of the work of the journey together of faith, you don't have to take that. I don't need this. I can go in any direction. In fact, that's, that's unchristian. That's the way it's handled. That's unchristian. That's not gentle and respectful. That's harsh and rude. We've been so stroked and so tickled and so glad-handed for so long that I fear that we can't receive this, anything like this, unless it makes us feel better. But like the Corinthian church, they felt bad, grieved before they felt better. True feeling better is via repentance and often grief. Having to reckon with difficult issues. If I were in that church, I would have been thankful for a man that had the courage to write a severe letter because he loved me that much. And because he loved his people that much. Maybe we don't understand biblical gentleness. What it seems to mean is harnessed truth, not silenced truth. Harnessed truth. Some of these examples, you might say, they're not harnessed. But again, that might be conditioned by a 2,000-year-old understanding of gentleness and respect. When we are hated by the world, we are to respond with an account. It's not Christian to be silent. And that count, account is to be biblically gentle and respectful. Biblically gentle and respectful. Next week, we're going to examine exactly what that looks like. And we're supposed to do this without surprise, with joy, without shame, and enjoy finding God. The last ingredient that I've got this morning for a godly response to hatred is that we respond with hope. Acts chapter 7, verse 58 you may have remembered this or noted this as I read through this a minute ago. As they rush at Stephen, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. A few verses later in chapter 8 verse 1, it says, Saul approved of his execution. Good job. Good shot with that rock. Man, that one nailed him. Well done and well deserved. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Hatred. Severe hatred. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he might, might find any belonging to the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I, you got to love the fact 
that Saul is holding the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. And just a chapter later, is preaching in the synagogues. You got to enjoy the fact that this man that's once the hater has now become the hated. How many testimonies and sermons had he heard as the hater? He heard Stephen's. Listen to the whole thorough thing. How many others had he heard as the hater and through the work of the Holy Spirit becomes a fellow hated? How many of those had he persecuted and thrown into prison that he later identified as his fellow brothers and sisters? How many? As we give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect, we have got to give that account for hope within with gentleness and respect with hope that who we're talking to and who we're being hated by is a future fellow hated. We've got to give that account hopeful that God may use that testimony that we share, even though it may appear to be received as hate, that God may open the eyes of their hearts later to where they later someday call you brother or sister. I don't know if there's any more prominent pain or hatred that we can feel than the hatred of a scorn or the hatred or scorn of a brother or sister. And I mean a physical brother or sister. I have two brothers, one older and one younger. And I would never say that we hated each other. But man, I can tell you we we had plenty of times where we were hateful. And I don't know if anything hurts more than that, than the hatred by a physical brother or sister. Jesus had some brothers. You may not know that. Listen to these words from Jesus in Mark chapter 6. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He couldn't do any, or he didn't do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. You get some clue of what life was like at home among his brothers from that passage and also from John chapter 6, excuse me, verse, or chapter 7. It says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you're doing. Why don't you go up to the feast, brother Jesus, big brother? Why don't you go up there and show off a little bit? For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you would do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. But by Acts chapter 1... Verse 14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is after Christ ascended to the right hand. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Devoting themselves to prayer. James, the writer of the book of James, was one of those brothers. He starts his letter out, James. He went on to be the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. He starts those letters out with these words, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, and oh, by the way, the little brother of Jesus. He's not even his brother anymore. He's my Lord. And James wasn't the only one. Jude, the wordy guy Jude, has a book that's a whole chapter long. Starts his letter out this way. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. He doesn't even mention that he's brother. His big brother is Jesus. And brother of James. Yet servant of Christ Jesus. Former haters, now worshipers. We are to respond with gentleness and respect and hope. Hope that the current haters will be future hated with us. Let me pray. <clears throat> God, I pray that these, uh, these sort of messages will be equipping. I just pray that you open our eyes to these dynamics, that you are always at work, that you're never idle, that hearts that could be most hateful 
could be white-hot worshipers in the future. And then maybe you might use our testimony, albeit feeble, frail, as an instrument in that. Lord, I pray that you will find us and make us faithful. I pray that you will give us insight through the leadership of the Holy Spirit and how to give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect, biblical gentleness. Show us how to do this where it brings honor and glory to you, where the truth is spoken in love. Lord, forgive us for silence. Forgive us for glad-handing. Forgive the pulpits of contemporary Christian church for being fearful of admonishment and rebuke. Forgive the people of God for not being part of this work, first in the body and then outside the body. Lord, I pray that we can be an aroma of Christ to you and that as men of sincerity and women of sincerity, we can speak in Christ. Lord, we pray you'll work this in us. Pray that you'll show us what this looks like from day to day through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we continue to worship. In Christ's name, amen. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, it's something that we do every week. It's a fairly formal thing. I recently heard a pastor ask the question. He was just kind of thinking out loud. He said, I don't know when casualness became the pinnacle of intimacy. And sometimes I think it's a very casual approach to these things that would keep us from speaking the truth in love as it has been exposed this morning. In Luke 22, verse 7, it says, The day came of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, you have entered the city. When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared, um, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we take of the supper this morning, I want you to be, I want you to consider your remembrance. It's kind of a weird thing. It's like saying, think about your thoughts. But as the, as the plate is passed, consider where your mind goes because the remembrance that we're called to is not vague generality. It's specific. Christ is saying, do this that you've done for a long time in remembrance of me. And in a way, he's saying, I don't want you to just live your life the way you want to live it as long as I can be a part. He said, I'm changing the whole game. What you've done, now you do for me, for my glory, and you take this in remembrance of me. And our remembrance is specific. And if we're remembering Christ specifically this morning, given the sermon you've just heard, you may be remembering him in a totally different way or in a new way that you've never considered with new terms as far as what gentleness and respect actually means. Your hope may look a little different, a little more refined this morning as we take this in remembrance of him. Specifics on the bread and the body. In the flesh, he was hated, dismissed, betrayed. Consider the specifics. Arrested, denied, mocked, crucified. Yet, he conquered it. He conquered death, he conquered the flesh, and he gives us the spirit that we may not be limited to our flesh. So I encourage you to be specific in your remembrance as we take of the bread this morning. In specific remembrance, take and eat. Colossians 1.18 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Specific remembrance as we take the juice and remember the blood. It's spilled as a sacrifice, providing specific atonement for specific sin. Consider your sin this morning. Don't take this in vague remembrance and continue in sin. Repent and take this gladly, receiving the grace and mercy that's been given freely. He also comes uh, fulfilling and making clear what we know in part of the Passover lamb. Luke 22, verse 20. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, we're very, very thankful that we can come together and have a perfect sacrifice, that your righteousness is counted uh, as ours, it humbles us, and I pray that in being rightly humbled at a work that you've done that's outside of us, that we would not exalt ourselves to our definition of gentleness or respect being somehow seemingly higher than yours. And so I pray that you would inform us rightly. I pray this morning that we have indeed been transformed by the renewal of our minds so that our lives are given as sacrifices in response to the call that's been placed on our lives to walk in a manner worthy. We count it a privilege to be counted as your children and heirs provided we suffer. Lord, we pray that you would bless the rest of our time. I pray that as we continue to sing, that we would do so wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth as an act of worship. And I pray that we would give as an act of worship as well. Lord, we thank you for Christ, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message this morning, I, I hope, is equipping. And it's not like, hopefully not equipping y'all to go to the office and start calling people vipers. Or, you know, man's talking with his wife. Honey, you're being, like you're in a brood of vipers today. We use those really vivid, poignant examples to hopefully edge our understanding of gentleness down the continuum a little bit. Bump it down some. Bump it down from what is really, I think we have to confess, is maybe kind of a worldly, tolerant, you know, I don't want to offend anybody sort of thing and bump it down some to where it's biblically informed. So don't, I'm not encouraging you to go to this extreme down here where in these really poignant, important serious examples where the gospel is compromised sort of situations where you just come Barney Fife, you know, correcting everybody with harsh language or what could be perceived as harsh language. But hopefully it's moved us a little bit. Hopefully it's equipped us to be biblically gentle. And with the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we understand, okay, that's not being unchristian. In fact, they may, we may be most Christian and most Christ-like when we are like that. This is an equipping message that uh, hopefully will give you some insight, not only in the giving of truth, of how to give it, but also equipping in how to receive it. I hope you got that this sermon wasn't just about the giving, but it's also about the receiving, because you may be on the receiving end of a, of a loving admonishment, a loving rebuke by a brother or sister, and you need to receive that. And be thankful that you're part of a journey together with other people who can help a brother when he has fallen down. Because two are better than one. Don't be surprised when that happens to you, as if something strange were happening to you. Be thankful that that's what's characteristic of the people of God. We are our brother's keeper, unlike the first murderer says. Not like meddlers, but as people who care about each other as members of one another. We speak the truth in love. So it's not just about the giving, it's about the receiving. Don't dismiss something because you didn't like the way it's delivered. Check the content. Check the authority. If it's from the Word, and if it's among a brother and sister man, take it at. So with some serious gravity. <clears throat>
Lord, we're thankful for the time that we've had together this morning. We're thankful that we can be equipped by the Word, that it does renew our minds and gives us a new lens for viewing the world, for viewing Tuesday and Den and Cubicle and um, friendships, relationships, uh, what it means to be on a journey together. We're just thankful that you've given us the Word that is... uh, Um, coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit that just opens our eyes to it. Lord, I pray that we've been equipped and that as we chew on this together this week, as families and in small groups, that it'll find a home in us and find purchase and expression to where you will have a salty or a more salty, more bright, aromatic people as a result of the time that we've spent together in your word. We love you, Lord. We turn this week over to you as an offering and pray that you will find us Uh, the aroma of Christ to you, Um, being aromatic in every place. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. You're dismissed.